everyone, welcome to Typhoon Talks, brought to you by Typhoon Consulting, a boutique management consultancy headquartered in Hong Kong. I'm today's host, Kelly Hausiacher, and I'm joined today by Chen. Hello, everyone. And Becky. Hello. So today we'll be catching up on the monthly news for May. So we'll be starting off with Xiaomi's uh, filing for an IPO in Hong Kong, then moving on to the evolving Sino-US trade war and the American withdrawal from the Iran nuclear deal. So Chen, what, what can you tell us about the Xiaomi filing for IPO? Um, so earlier this month, Xiaomi filed for an IPO, which is due in early July this year, and it will give it will give Xiaomi a valuation of a hundred billion US dollars. So the significance about this IPO is that it's one of the biggest uh, in the recent few years, and also a lot of people challenge the valuation. Um, Xiaomi was established in two thousand ten, and in the beginning, um, it w it only sold mobile phones, it only sold smartphones online, so only the digital channels, and gradually it moved into a lot of uh, home appliance um, and a lot of offline shops as well. So um, it experienced a revenue decline in 2016, um, and recently it picks up again. So a lot of people challenge whether Xiaomi can live up to the valuation. Right. So what uh, explains the recent pickup in the, the profits? So the main reason is that it started to develop the offline channels as well instead of just selling phones online. And another change is that it started to sell a lot of, um, it started to explore a lot of other sectors. Uh, so in the recent few years, Xiaomi in, uh, invested in over 80 companies of different sectors with connected devices um, to provide an ecosystem centered around the phone. For instance, when you use a vacuum, it can be, it's a smart vacuum and you can control via your mobile phone. So are they then competing with uh, the other recognizable Internet of Things brands? True, but in China, it's quite ahead of other smartphone manufacturers. So what is Xiaomi's position in the market in China? So in China, by the end of 2017, the top five brands cover 80% of the market share and all the rest 20% is covered by the other brands and the top five brands are Huawei, Vivo, Oppo, Xiaomi and Apple and you can see that the top four are domestic brands and then only um, Vivo and Oppo only started to take over the market since 2015 they grew really quickly and quickly became um, Top, five, top, top three since 2015. And that's also the time when Xiaomi's revenue started to decline from the peak time, which was 16% to less than um, 7%. So it was a big drop at that time because of the saturated market. Um, for the peak time, Xiaomi sold 2 million phones. China's Singles Day, which is um, November the 11th, um, on single platform, that's a, a world record. But afterwards, the model was not so sustainable anymore, and they started to explore the offline stores and the other sectors with connected devices. That's a really interesting model in terms of reversing what we're seeing with most retail, which is a move from shopfront to online. Do you think that's, is it kind of indicative that maybe everything won't end up being an online marketplace? It's definitely a trend that a lot of companies start to see 
the importance of keeping the offline shops. And for Xiaomi, it's not only about selling phones anymore. It's about building up the ecosystem, um, which covers every aspect of people's life. Um, so they they said it's from the Internet of Things to Internet of Everything, and it's about people, process, devices. Everything needs to be connected. For the offline shops, they want to provide um, a good user experience for consumers. When going to a, an offline sh store, you can try the devices, you can touch them. So their founder, uh, Lei Jun, says that we're not going to be the Apple of China, we're going to be Muji of the tech space, which means that they really want to focus on design and technology instead of just manufacturing phones. Right. So what does it mean to be the Muji of um, so Muji is, uh, in Asia, it's famous for having a very nice design and very good quality and has a lot of offline chain shops. So if you, you just walk around Hong Kong, you can see a lot of big Muji shops and you can try their uh, stuff in the offline store. So what Xiaomi really wants to do is to copy that model and provide a lot of a variety of products. Um, but all of these products will be connected devices. Um, which feed the data into the phone and into the back end of the company. How do you think this plays into the larger conception of smart home devices, uh, especially recently with uh, different scandals about data collection? Is the environment for it really different here in Asia? Um, in China, it's not a big concern yet because um, there's a very blurred line between private and public. Whatever um, people have are controlled by the government, so people don't care so much about privacy yet. Um, at least they, do, they are not so conscious about the importance of keeping the data to themselves. So in China, when a company grows bigger, it will be taken over by the government anyway. So there's no such thing about company controlling private data. Um, and, but for the company, it, it's really crucial to see how Xiaomi is going to use this kind of data in the future and create better user experience. Thank you, Chen. And now we'll be moving on to Becky, and you're going to tell us about the evolving Sino-US trade war and how that is expanding into other realms. Yeah, so back in 2012, the Chinese telecoms giant ZTE breached US, US sanctions by exporting their devices to Iran and North Korea. Um, so this April, it was found that they hadn't fully complied with the reprisals that the U.S. put out for this. Um, so they'd paid a large fine, they'd fired four senior executives, but they didn't fully dock the bonuses of 35 other employees. So the U.S. announced that um, there'd be a seven-year ban on all U.S. companies trading with ZTE. Uh, last weekend, Trump then tweeted that he would be working closely with the Chinese to keep ZTE in business after, on the 9th of May, they stopped all of their major operations. Um, this week, we've then seen some really beautiful, confused running around by the US government about what was actually going on. The House Committee passed an amendment which required the sanctions to be upheld. So it's quite unclear as to what's going on, um, but we have some interesting thoughts anyway. Yeah, so what do you think was behind Trump's reversal on this policy point? So I actually think this is where it becomes really interesting. Trump's reversal on the sanctions could be seen quite persuasively as a really impressive foreign policy move. So we all know that he 
implemented tariffs which don't make that big of a difference for the US economy on aluminium and steel. Um, and in retaliation, the Chinese started talking about putting their own tariffs on US agricultural products, which would not only be a big hit to the US um, market, but also hit Trump's core support base, which is obviously not what a man like him is going to go in for. Um, so actually, by calling up on this um, Zeti issue, which is such a big company in China, it going bust would be a big problem. Um, because like Chen was saying, large companies are often state-backed. By then backing down on this, he's got a pretty good bargaining chip to get the agricultural tariffs off the table. Um, that had, there were rumours, happened already. Um, but obviously yesterday's um, House Committee amendment somewhat throws that up in the air again. So not sure what's happening there. But I think the original reversal made a lot of sense. The execution potentially left something to be desired. So why do you think this sector was more important? Why is this more central to what's been going on? So technology has been at the centre of a lot of the trade war um, between the US and particularly in the press. The trade war is the thing that is really garnering all of the attention. It's what people like to make a big deal out of. Um, so 5G has been at the centre of the debate. And, you know, uh, in January this year, ZD announced they were planning on releasing a 5G smartphone by the end of the year or in early 2019. Um, and this has been quite a big thing for the US in terms of uh, pitching it as national security. So if the Chinese get 5G first, um, they'll have a military advantage is the idea. Um, but also there's some scaremongering that potentially then they will control all of the internet all over the world. Um, people thought that also with 3G and 4G, it hasn't yet happened. But um, you know, it's that kind of stuff that's out there. Technology has a way of becoming quite emotive. Um, so I don't think there's much in it. I think. China is pushing a lot of government funding into the scientific research around um, new technology. Uh, but the, for the US, they're not really doing that. It's not a very scientific climate at the moment, I think, if your president denies climate change. But they've also been doing things. So um, Trump has been blocking Chinese acquisitions of US tech companies. Um, he's been making quite a big thing about it. And IP theft is obviously a really big issue. There's an um, inquiry at the moment which is expected to return the verdict that China has cost the US one trillion in um, stolen IP. Um, so yeah, tech is quite a big central thing, but really I think it, what it comes down to is that China is currently the first real challenger that the US has had to its tech supremacy. Um, and I think it's probably part of a wider readjustment in global trade, which isn't so much a trade war, it's just a recognition that the US is no longer the one supreme country and that other economies are going to catch up. It, this is actually not the first time uh, that the US banned the Chinese uh, mobile phone company. Previously, Huawei was also banned and was accused of spying. So do you think it shows um, the Western countries' concern of Chinese data issue? I think it does, um, but I think potentially it's again more of a domestic US issue. So Britain have, since the ZTE thing, um, the government issued a warning um, to, the, to telecoms providers saying there might be a threat, but they've navigated the issue quite well and other European countries haven't done things like ban these companies. Um, the market dynamics are quite different. China is the biggest um, semiconductor market for US companies. Um, very significant. I think you know Qualcomm would have gone bust if they hadn't been able to sell to ZTE, which I think must have been quite in the forefront of Trump's mind for all his talk of Chinese jobs. Um, but I think other countries, you know, uh, to go back to Britain again, they have a they've set up a committee who for Huawei. They have the right to 
to go into really a lot of detail about all the software and all the hardware that Huawei sells into Britain. So they really check there is no security concern and they haven't yet banned it. So I think maybe concern about Chinese data is a thing, but I'm not sure if it's grounded in any reality. <laughs> so you mentioned a lot about that it's from a domestic standpoint that the policy changes as international as they are and as international as the ramifications could be. That's a lot about perception at home. So based on the recent developments in the last few days, what is your perception of Trump's, uh, what is your perception of these policy changes? Um, I think it's a really interesting lesson in the importance of getting your, you know, the people you share power with on board, sharing your plans and presenting a united front. You know, a lot of uh, Republicans have taken to Twitter to criticise Trump about this. We've obviously seen um, the House Committee and this, uh, there's been a letter by uh, 35 Democratic senators calling Trump out on reversing these sanctions. Um, so I think it's a good lesson in you know how you keep people on board with your change. But I'm not sure in terms of if you think look a bit more broadly, again mentioning the international context, I think what it really shows us is how interconnected these global economies are. You know, Trump has had to go back because it's going to not only lose lots of Chinese jobs, but um, US jobs is really the big thing. You know, these companies all trade with each other. They're all each other's biggest trading partners. Um, you know, I think it really shows us how, for all the hype about a trade war, it's not really possible for them to go on a full-out tariff confrontational path um, just without ruining themselves, and I'm not sure they're going to do that. All right, well, thank you, Becky. Uh, now to continue with the theme of the U.S. imposing sanctions, uh, we're going to be talking about the, the withdrawal from the Iran nuclear deal, the JCPOA, in also the last few weeks, and it's also been evolving a bit over the last few days. So the American withdrawal is having quite widespread ramifications, especially in the last few days on the crude oil prices. Um, so we're going to be taking, taking the perspective of the impact this will have on energy supplies and natural gas specifically, because Iran, as the country with the second largest natural gas reserves, is now set to lose out from especially European investment in oil and gas development projects. And this is going to highlight the worldwide shift that's going on with different leaders in gas production and gas exports especially as m multiple companies are now drawing attention to the fact that in the next decade there's going to be a severe shortage of natural gas supply. So nuclear is at the centre of the Iran deal, um, which has a lot of security issues and things. What do you think the fallout will be from that point of view, from the US's withdrawal? So I think the nuclear aspect is what is probably most central in the public perception because it is well, it is the main clause of the deal and it is the main negotiating point. But then, as you can also see recently, that um, Iran is saying that if there is a mass exodus of European companies leaving their projects, for their investments in Iran, it makes it just almost unfathomable to really not have to go back into nuclear energy. And that's what they're essentially saying. And then in terms of then public perception, that is the big sticking point that people are going to get very upset about. Why is natural gas so important and to whom? So recently, there's been several moves to natural gas. So China's actually overtaken uh, South Korea in, in natural gas imports because they're trying to make the move from coal to natural gas because it's both 
well, it's been proven to be uh, more environmentally friendly in terms of uh, CO2 emissions, though there has been some criticism of the measuring of methane emissions across the whole process. But generally, it's been established that it is better for the environment, and it has also helped China meet their air quality goals recently. And then it's also a huge source of income for several countries. So Qatar is currently number one in exporting gas, and it is why they because they share that same oil uh, gas field with Iran, and that is what enabled them to be well, put in so much foreign investment around the world. And then also recently, or this year. Uh, there's a very large liquid natural gas platform expected to come online off the coast of Western Australia, and then it's expected that they might be able to overtake all the other countries. But there's a lot of speculation at the moment about how the playing field will shift. Some say it might be the US. Uh, it used to be said that Iran might become number one. Qatar is now stepping up, especially in response to the recent blockade by several of the other Gulf countries. They're going to step up their gas production as well, and then Australia is looking to also step up their exports. And it's all to meet essentially this Asian demand and this growing demand. Even just this year, the growth in um, exports, I think it was 30% higher than what was expected to grow by. So it's really increasing very quickly. And this is very important if we just think about how uh, the energy supplies so many different sectors and then also the different consumer bases. Yeah. Um, so Kelly, looping back to what um, we were saying earlier about kind of US foreign relations and kind of what's going on between them and the rest of the world, what do you think kind of the impact will be? We've seen Europe, um, you know, fighting quite hard to keep this deal on the table. Where do you think that will lead? So at the moment it's still ongoing as we record this podcast, um, but several European leaders, they're trying quite hard to keep this deal going. And while they do admit that they can't stop multinationals from leaving, so for example, the a total a French oil company has uh, said that unless there's a fee waiver from the United States, they're going to withdraw their $5 billion investment from uh, Iran. But in terms of smaller and medium-sized businesses, the EU is looking to protect them. So they are looking to oppose uh, these US sanctions in the same way that they did with uh, Cuba. And then in terms of just international relations generally, it's adding again to the instability in the Middle East. So even just in terms of natural gas, uh, because Iran and Qatar share this gas field, and Qatar is currently being isolated from its neighbors. Uh, Qatar still has very strong ties to the states, but they've become very reliant recently on Iran. So if they were essentially to have to make a choice, they would become isolated from either their one neighbor or from the United States. So it's all still very up in the air at the moment. Sure. And in terms of um, you know, Europe fighting to keep this deal on the table, we've obviously seen under Trump the US withdraw from quite a few international agreements, so you know, Paris Climate the TPP. Um, do you think this is going to kind of add to that? Do you think that there's going to be a change in the way international relations and international agreements specifically are done in the future? Yeah, I think so. I don't know if you would agree as well, but I think the sense that we're getting is that, especially from the European perspective, United States is not anymore the number one party you have to get on board. I mean, we both study history, and that's the major thing you see for so much of the last centuries, that if you want an international deal to work, to go forward, you need the United States. 
but based on recent behavior and then the commitment of non-governmental organizations in the US to still keep certain deals going, it's become very clear that it's, it's much larger than the US and the US is, as you were saying earlier, having to accept that it is no longer the only major power. It'll be interesting if this is how Russia and China become to work a lot more closely with the rest of Europe and yeah. we see the US on the outside. <laughs> yeah, I mean, not to have to bring it back to natural gas again, but you also see that in with Russia, because Russia also has one of the largest natural gas fields. And if, you know, Europe wants energy, that's where they're going to have to get it from if they can't get it from Iran. All right, so that sums up today's episode of our monthly news review. Thanks, guys. Thank you, Chen. Thank you, Becky. Thank you. Thank you, Kelly. So follow us on Twitter at Typhoon Buzz, iTunes and SoundCloud at Typhoon Talks for more podcast episodes. And please also visit our website at typhoonconsulting.com for more industry points of views. We hope you'll join us again next time.